0: The Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129 presents America This Week, a smart Catholic take on faith and culture with Father Matt Malone and Carrie Weber.
1: Good day. You're listening to America This Week, a smart Catholic take on faith and culture. I am Carrie Weber, Executive Editor for America Media.
2: And I'm Tim Reedy, sitting in for Father Matt Malone. Each week we offer news and analysis from the intersection of the church and the world gathered by our
3: team at America Magazine.
1: And one of our team members is here with us today, Kevin Clark, our senior editor and chief correspondent. Kevin, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me once again.
1: We are always glad to have you.
2: We will be joined by a frequent guest, Eileen Markey, who is an independent reporter, also teaches journalism. The City University of New York, author of A Radical Faith, uh, The Assassination of Sister Moore. She'll be talking about her most recent article in the magazine about uh, whether we can cure gun violence. So very important issue.
1: Eileen, welcome to the show. Hello, lovely to be with you. We are very glad to have you. Uh, have you so back?
2: You've been here two or three times. Yeah.
3: You're gonna get. You're gonna have to put you in one of those. Uh, uh, what, what are you on Saturday Night Live? You know, the f- the five timers.
2: This is your yeah, right, nice. third That's show, good. right? Looks we we tried
3: to reserve the, the fishbowl, but
2: Seinfeld was here today. <laughs> the the um. ways in which our show parallels
1: Saturday Night Live are just endless. So we could go on and on, but for now we'll stick to the disease of gun violence. So the article is called "Can We Use Public Health Models to Cure the Disease of Gun Violence?" and is there a sh- short answer to that? <laughs> <laughs> that a, a really long body of research of
0: statistical analysis shows that, yeah, really we could. Um, if we use a methodology of thinking about violence as a disease as opposed to um, a choice of a behavior, a individual failure, um, clearly it can be multiple things at once. Um, right, right, But when we think about crime reduction and when we think about um, about making cities safer, We tend to only think from a policing standpoint, and there's logical reasons why that's the case. Um, But that's not the only way to reduce crime, and that's not the only way to reduce violence. Um, And while a variety of crime-fighting mechanisms have been have been successful, right, uh, over the last 15, 20, 25 years, um, there's still a a certain level of persistence of gun violence um, in poor neighborhoods in inner cities, and. You know, we tried the just locking everybody up and violating everybody's civil liberties method, right? Um, We've tried totally alienating communities method, right? We've tried back and forth sort of different methodologies of how police interact with the community in a more soft way or a more hard way. Um, We've tried militarizing the police forces, spending tremendous amounts of money to make our police forces look like invading armies. Um, And all of those... You know, had some impact on crime, um, some more and less. And there's like whole, whole people's academic careers that debate these issues. Um, but all of those are only looking from the policing standpoint. And actually, what if you looked at it from a health standpoint? What if you looked at it from a psychological standpoint? What if you looked at it from a community standpoint? So, the people I profiled, the people I did research, you know, among and interviewed a bunch of people, aren't. Um, are just kind of putting the police to that side, like okay, that's fine. Some people can talk about that crime fighting from that standpoint. We're going to talk about violence as an illness, as and an as, epidemic, a really. as a contagious, as a contagious illness, the same way we think about Ebola, the same way you think about West Nile, right? If I and and the way that uh, the World Health Organization or other groups like that interrupt um, a a medical academ- epidemic, right? There's the, there's long standing practices of how you do that, and you really want to. You want to break the chain that goes from me coughing on you or me burying you in a way that right, lets the Ebola spread. Um,
1: so how do you do that when it so, relates to gun violence?
0: So it's really interesting what they've been doing in Chicago in these really limited particular ways, and it's a method that's been adopted in I think 23 other cities and, and several countries, um, is that we look at, all right, Tim, I killed your brother. The person, mo- like that's a transmission of violence from me to your brother. The next flare-up of violence is going to be you killing me, right? Right. Or is going to be you killing somebody in my my quad. Um, And so what we can do is surround you with aid, with psychological help, with people who you are prone to respect, so um, people who come from your way of life who maybe used to be engaged in violence who can say, you know what, Tim, I know you're angry, I know you're hurt, I know you have come up through a code of behavior that says that the right thing to do now is to kill Eileen, um, but there's another way, and let's slow this down, um, and let's see what we can do to help you figure out other ways so you can make different choices. It's a, What attracted me to writing about this method is that it's really high touch, it's really one-on-one, um, and when we think about a lot of social problems, I mean, like you're uh, the person who was criticizing the coverage of the Honduran migrants. Um, sometimes we don't personalize, right? It's them, it's it's like we only think on like a population scale, but obviously all these individual acts happen person to person. Um, and so the work of the people from Chicago is who are public health experts, not crime fighters, right? Um, is to use this idea of individual relationship building um, to, to stop that transmission so that the contagion does not carry on because it, it grows and grows and grows, right? And then you have neighborhoods that Uh, Where it's very common to go to funerals of young men because. And
3: And where shootings at funerals of young men happen a lot as well.
0: Right, exactly. Because that's the. Right.
3: Transmission. You and I don't come
0: from a place like this, but because that's actually like the appropriate thing to do according to the norms of that place to show respect, right?
3: Chicago is often spoken of as this, uh, you know, because because properly so, in some respects, because the the homicide rate is so high, uh, I think they have. almost double the number of homicides as in New York. New York is f- four times the size of Chicago. Um, it, but is, when you when you drill down, it's really, it's just a couple of neighborhoods really where the vast majority of these, these homicides are taking place. Isn't that the story in Chicago?
0: Exactly. And so that's how these public health experts from the University of Illinois at Chicago started started thinking along these lines is, um, all right, so where, where are the shootings happening? And who is, you know, who's most likely to be involved. And police departments, to a certain degree, do this sort of work as well, mm. right? For, um, for, it's for not deploying. that there's generalized crime, right, for deploying resources. Yeah. Um, it's that there's this group of people, and it's actually mappable, and it's measurable. That's um, all right. Go ahead. You, use the cough button. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but I'm guessing, um, you know, the, the, the public health guys don't do right-alongs with the Chicago Police Department too often.
0: No, it's really interesting. They have a relationship with the police department that goes one way. Um, so they don't inform, right? They they are social workers, not exactly the right word, um, mm-hmm. but it's what they're doing really is accompaniment, right? With people who are enmeshed in cycles of violence. Uh, and the people doing the accompaniment are people who are one step removed from those cycles of violence. So usually people who have criminal records, usually people who've been involved in the drug trade, Um, or who've been involved in other criminal acts, and are now, you know, served their time and want to do something else with their lives, want to find a way out. Um, And so being employed by these small agencies is one way, uh, that they use their expertise, right, which we should acknowledge is actually expertise, right? If you understand how people think on the corner, um, that's like a skill set that you and I don't have. Um, But they can use that expertise towards violence reduction. So it's really the work of being peacemakers, like quite literally Franciscan peacemakers, right? Right, right. and they have right.
2: credibility because right. they may be known in the neighborhood or they've been they've faced similar situations. So, um,
0: yeah,
1: it's not someone just coming in from the outside and right. saying, "Hey, don't do this because you're going to get in trouble." Right,
0: it's someone saying, "I know exactly how you feel. I was in the same situation myself. Here's some other ways. How about we get you back into high school? Um, how about we..." Talk to you about psychology. How about we talk to you about the trauma that you've inherited from the violence that you've seen, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. the violence that's been uh, enacted on you, right? So, right.
1: and one of the people that you interviewed talked about this um, in the context of justice as well, saying there's no justice in waiting for a person who has been heavily traumatized by violence themselves. To behave violently and then to send them to prison right it's not fair for anyone involved
0: right right that was uh dr charles Ransford, who does a lot of the uh statistical analysis of this saying you know this is a justice issue if we know that the more often you're exposed to violence the more likely you are to commit it right um you know a dictatorial society would preemptively arrest you right um you know, in Brave New World or something, right? right? You would preempt it like you're apart, gonna yeah. ing- you're gonna do something <laughs> bad. i are gonna get you. Too first. many of those ideas out there. The- <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of predictive policing. Like our police forces do this a lot, right? Um, and use a lot of surveillance and use a lot of um, social media tracking to do predictive policing, um, which has like grave civil liberties violations involved in it, and it and it's a very common practice. Um, our courts don't yet usually abide by it, but but definitely there's a ton of predictive policing that happens in all of our cities in the U.S. Um, but this is, let's deploy the resources in terms of the, and again, what interested me in it is that it is this humane, high-touch, um, individual association sort of approach. Um, so, of course, when I say I'm writing about a successful violence reduction method from Chicago, I think the normal reaction would be, I don't think it's working." Yeah, right? <laughs> um the this method, which is called Cure Violence, um, and you can look it up, and there's really great research and academic research on it, um, and it's used in, as I said, it's used in El Salvador, it's used in the West Bank, it's used in post-conflict stuff in Rwanda, um, and it's used in a bunch of U.S. cities, and, and New York, which I focus on a bit in this piece, uh, has adopted it as a, as a major method um, in our most high-crime neighborhoods of New York. Um, the point is that it's really targeted Uh, So, when it's been used, it's always in like a 10 block area, like a really narrow place. And when it gets the state funding to hire the social workers and hire the guys who are going to do the peacemaking um, and and hire the people who are going to do the, here, let's get you into high school and here, let's get you into a union job training program, um, it shows really just sort of remarkable results when compared to neighborhoods with similar crime rates and similar uh, demographic profiles. Um, but it's usually been on a pretty small scale. In Chicago, it was used for a couple of years starting maybe 2011 to 2014. I'm going to get the years wrong. Um, and then there was that budget standoff in Illinois um, where basically no state work was done. Um, while No
3: additional monies were coming.
0: Yeah, you know, and it wasn't yeah. an issue of like not increasing the budget for this, but really no, nothing was spent in Illinois that was not essential services, right? Uh, so the programs were cut. And crime jumps back up in all of those hot neighborhoods. Um, Last year it was re-implied and the numbers have gone down in those neighborhoods where this method is being used. Um, It's obviously far less expensive than incarceration and murder. Um, But of course... As Catholics, we don't really measure things by how expensive they are. Hopefully, we do it by how right it is. Um, As it- taxpayers,
3: though, it's worth you know looking at things from a, a more practical perspective. A couple of trips to the emergency room for gunshot wounds are uh, you know not not small uh, cost to the general society. Yeah. And that's yeah.
0: one of the interesting things here in the Bronx, and, and there's some of these relationships in the other cities as well. Uh, some of these programs are actually operated out of the hospital. So St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx, um, and Jacoby, actually the public hospital down the street in the Bronx as well, um, have these cure violence teams that, that live there, You know that operate out of the public affairs office of the hospital. Um, and so when someone comes in, when a gunshot victim comes in, uh, one of these workers is deployed to that family or to the crew that comes in with a gunshot victim and is sitting there in the in the room where the crisis is occurring, right? Right. Um, right. Yeah,
1: it's an immediate response, to, yeah. the way you would want to kind of try to capture a contagion and, as soon as possible. Well,
2: how else does this happen? I mean, is it literally just walking the streets in these neighborhoods and trying to target folks who might be prone to violence, or you even mentioned maybe just throwing a block party and meeting people and kind of getting to know the community?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. So the work that, um, one of the organizations that I profiled, it's called Bronx Rising Against Gun Violence. Um, BRAG. BRAG, <laughs> um, which is part of Good Shepherd Services, actually a big multi-service uh, organization in the Bronx. Um, so BRAG will be contracted by the city to intervene in certain high-crime high, high crime neighborhoods or high-violence neighborhoods. Um, and so this summer, they expanded into another neighborhood in the Bronx, in the North Bronx, kind of Wakefield neighborhood. Um where there's been persistently, um, high murder rate and, and gang activity going back 15, 20 years. Um, and it, you know, there's all sorts of really good and decent people who live in that neighborhood and it makes it really hard for them to operate. Right. So people don't spend enough time outside or enough time talking to their neighbors or, um, are very guarded when they're waiting for the bus or guarded when their kids are going to school because this, um, you know, very limited physical part of the area is unsafe. Right. Um, And so Bragg goes in, went in this summer and hosted a series of block parties um, to do the very normal, basic, healthy thing of getting neighbors to talk to each other, right? So they'd shut down traffic on a block, um, set up a DJ, have a dance contest, have some booths, um, invite everything from like the Mary Kay saleswoman to a couple of local churches to, you know, some neighborhood businesses to set up, you know, stands. Um, And then, you know, have hot dogs and hamburgers. Um, so I went to one of these in August and um, and we have really beautiful photos of it actually right of just people behaving like people right people being given the space to operate in the healthy ways that help develop community and we know that having strong local relationships having a multitude of what sociologists call weak bonds right not I'm gonna um, go live with you level of friendship but I'm gonna say hi to you in the morning level of friendship Uh, a healthy neighborhood many, you have many, many of those sort of weak links that knit together to build social health. Um, and so hosting these block parties um, starts to make it possible to grow those little connections. Um, I'm talking with my hands. You totally miss so much now <laughs> that I'm on the radio. But it's really trying to build that interstitial tissue in a neighborhood that makes a neighborhood healthy, that makes a neighborhood safe. Um, and giving people space to think of other ways of being. Um, And so the people who came to that block party are the people who lived on that block and who were wary at first. And What's this all about? Who are these people? Is it safe to send my kids outside? Um, And also some of the people who are involved in the things that make things unsafe, right? Who are like, what's this? Is there another way to be? How can I operate here? Um, And the people hosting it, the The interrupters or the outreach workers for Bronx Rising Against Violence, against gun violence, um, were known to some of the people in the neighborhood, right? When when this method, when cure violence moves into a neighborhood, they spend, you know, three or four months doing research to figure out who to hire, who's going to be, what's the term they use? You know, who's going to be like a. a, Interrupter. Right. But there's also this. like a legitimate interrupter, right? Someone who's going to Someone be respected authentic, an authentic, an authentic mm-hmm. communicator. I think is the term they use. Um, so they end up hiring from nearby.
3: This all sounds very um, promising and, and com- almost commonsensical, um, and yet, uh, the it, it, you still talk about these things as if they're pilot programs or experiments. What is the big problem with with putting more uh, public resources into programs like this? You know, we don't we don't blink when we build uh, new new additions to prisons and, uh, you know, buy a new fleet of cars for our police departments i mean isn't this a cost-effective way of, of attempting to interrupt violence in the cities it's
0: a cost-effective way it's a humane effective way it's not just some hippies talking it's john hopkins <laughs> it's john jay college of criminal justice it's northwestern university it's the national institutes of health it's the centers for disease control and prevention doing um you know serious and as you research say it's been john,
3: documented it, around the world as as something that is effective
0: yeah that is done in this small bore way, and, and it, it kind of needs to be done 10 blocks by 10 blocks or 3 blocks by 3 blocks um is
1: that sort of why it takes a while or it take cuz it, it yeah, involves it takes a, a, a huge while. amount of research as you're saying and a you know we have, in order to find those authentic communicators you can't yeah. just hire some college kids and send them in and say, right. oh, go stop violence, right? So, right? so it's in some ways a, a, a low barrier to entry because it's just people talking to people, but yeah. also very high because you have to have exactly the right people. Right, right. Is but that- no,
0: I mean, the reason it doesn't get funded is because we have a, a lust for vengeance in this country, right? The reason it doesn't get funded is because we would far rather lock poor people up than try to help heal people, right? Well, well, I was again hoping you going to blame Calvinism on this. <laughs> so, but, yeah, know. I mean, we obviously have a mindset where we think of... Solutions based in power, right? Solutions mm-hmm. based in in slapping down, not solutions based in healing.
1: When you're saying the we is that in terms of who's giving out these grants to help do this, or you know, like it, I are people in terms sort of, of American psychological just in culture, right? But yeah, I think that could be that could be correct. But most of us aren't making the decisions to start these programs or fund these programs. So is there is there right. no, a bureaucratic the obstacle to to it in some ways? Like is there a resistance just because of that idea of like this isn't you know, well, don't appropriate enough vengeance
3: it doesn't appear hard on crime right, right. I mean that's yeah. that's how a lot of politicians got elected you know in the last couple of decades was where I'm hard on crime I'm strong on defense I'm hard on crime so you know you kind of wall yourself off then I think uh, yeah. if you keep the promises you make as a during a campaign um, then yeah where where do you end up you you, you're not gonna you're not gonna be you don't want to be perceived as being a a, someone who buys into sure. and
1: even that language like hard-on crime it it takes people out of it entirely right Mm -hmm. it's it's as though there's this abstract action that could happen to you if you're not careful and you don't elect that person
2: right and we're emerging from a time you point out um in the neighborhood by St. Barnabas for example 20 years ago there were like 140 murders in that neighborhood and it's down to under 10 now so there's been a remarkable turnaround but there was a lot of fear that came out of that time that is still kind of feeding our our public policies
0: I mean you think about how the president talks about crime right we think about how we're talking about these children and women and men walking here from Honduras as though they're all gonna come and slit our throats I mean there's this there's there's political power and and um, hay to be made by feeding on people's fears even utterly ridiculous unfounded fears Um, I mean, if that's how we're responding to people coming to apply for asylum, yes, of course, we still have this 1980s drug war kind of hangover in how we think about crime. Um, In neighborhoods where once there was indeed a great deal of violence, and there's a whole bunch of different complex kinds of reasons why there's not anymore, but for these last, it's kind of like for the stragglers, right, like for the last bits of gun violence that does still persist, how do we address that? Um, Although, like, connecting to to the people coming to seek asylum, um, this is used in in El Salvador, right? In some of the really, really high crime neighborhoods. Um, And on that local scale, for that limited amount of time, it can be effective. Um, But Carrie was asking about the bureaucratic interruptions. I mean, I guess a, a way to flip that is in New York, we've just invested a huge amount of money in this method. Um, And I think it's 21 different neighborhoods across New York City. Yeah, $18 million. So that's a a ray of hope there. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that doesn't mean that we're not still funding our police department. It's just that the police can do this kind of thing. And these other methods can do other kinds of work because not everything is a hammer.
1: Right. Right. And we'll hopefully make the job of the police easier or give them less to do when it comes to gun violence, at least. Or
0: allow them to do the things they're good at, which is not healing.
1: Yeah, it's not what that force is set up for. Now, is there anything that you were particularly personally sort of struck by when you were at the uh, the black party? Any sort of images that stick with you?
0: You know, we're talking so much in uh, at least in certain cult- certain circles in this country lately about masculinity and about um, different different ways of commuting. Mas- communicating masculinity and sort of the messages that boys are given and the messages that what shapes toughness and what shapes being a man. And um and these are all really tough guys, right? Like these are these are tough people who um who run the program, who are the interrupters, who are doing this incredibly peacemaker work. And I was struck by that. I was struck by the gentleness and the sweetness and the kindness and the vulnerability and the will like this is about being vulnerable. Acknowledging vulnerability, and building relationship, and communicating love, um, by muscle-bound guys with neck tattoos—you yeah, know, right. like this is a, this is it right. was a lovely thing. So that's what struck me is the, the gentleness and sweetness of that.
3: Oh, but how did they unlearn? No, a lot of these guys come up through these they neighborhoods. They go through prison. They, they I mean, go that's through the gangs, right? So. They had to unlearn some of the the behaviors they were taught. Uh, yeah,
0: it- exactly. Through this, this sort of training program that you go through as you're as you're getting ready to be one of the outreach workers.
1: So it must be healing for them as well. There's healing on like multiple levels of this program.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and then with the goal of healing a neighborhood and healing society. Yeah.
1: Right, and it, I w- imagine it gives a sense of uh, of of sort of purpose to the experience that they've had that it's it was not for nothing in a sense.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then one of the reasons I liked writing about this article, um, writing about this issue, is that it's also a, um, it's like a neighborhood-based solution, right? It's people, it's the community using the strengths that the community has to solve the problems. Um, We compound so many problems by coming in with with experts and outsiders who really don't understand local cultures, really don't understand things on the ground. Um, And and this instead is working from the strengths, like the many strengths of a poor neighborhood.
2: Right, this is an example of subsidiarity, you know, trying exactly. to build on the strengths of the local communities. So
1: Exactly. Well, Eileen, thank you so much for your time here today. We are so glad to have you back. Thank you. It's we lovely to, to be with you. We hope to have you back again. Uh, so for more on Eileen's article, you can read the whole thing at americamagazine.org slash Sirius. Can we use public health models to cure the disease of gun violence? You can also find all the other pieces that we were discussing today, at americamagazine.org and we will continue to have coverage of the elections and the response from uh, the catholic world uh, as it meets the political world we'll have
2: a couple stories yeah check our newsletter out or sign up for our newsletter for (laughs) daily coverage (laughs) uh, starting starting this afternoon
1: starting yeah we're uh, do
3: we have a Facebook pol- politics group? Yeah,
2: yep. R- our, our colleague, Robert Davis Sullivan. Which is that. really heroic of him,
3: I have to say. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I would want to wade into that uh, world myself. How do you we deal find with our that? comments, to
1: he'll to deal with the Facebook. Facebook.com okay. Facebook. okay. slash, out slash yeah. something. Or can...
3: We'll
2: put it up on our, uh, <laughs> our <laughs> We'll put it on the <laughs> series. We'll put it on American Look <laughs> well, for American Magazine on slash
1: Facebook. Slash mm-hmm. you can look for that, uh, and participate in our very civil discussion of politics there. Uh, so, and you can also, so as I mentioned, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, and for more, if you want to subscribe to the magazine, you can call 1 800 627 9533. Thanks very much for being with us today. For my colleagues Kevin Clark and Tim Reedy and myself, we hope you have a wonderful day.
3: Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.